today, we are going to talk about who God the Father is. God the Father is. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for all that you do, all that you have done this year, for all the things that we have noticed and the millions and millions of things we didn't notice that you have done for us. God, I pray that as we explore this subject of you being a father, that we would gain an accurate picture of you. In your name we pray, amen. You know, um, there's one quote that I really, really love, and it's by A.W. Tozer, and he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think of God impacts everything we do. What we think about God impacts our peace and our joy and how we order our lives and the values we have in our lives. So my question today is, what do you think about when you think about God? Where does your mind go to? What picture do you have of God? And today I would love to invite you and talk about and explore the subject of God being the Father as the, one of the most glorious pictures and truths about who God is that helps us, that changes how we live, that gives us peace and joy. As you remember, let me just do a little refresher about triune God. We, in week one, talked about how God is a trinity. He's a triune God. So let me just back up a little bit and give you a refresher. Probably you don't need one, but I need one. And so that we can then zoom in on God being the Father. Because without the triune understanding, talking about God the Father is just not really, really going to make sense. The Trinity is the doctrine or the teaching of Scripture that gives us these things. That God is one being. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God. But that this being exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then each person is fully, totally, 100% God in their own right. So the Father is not a third of God. And the Son is not a third of the God and the spirit is not a third of God and you add them up and you get God. No, each person is fully God. God the Son is no less God than God the Father. And when you combine them all, you don't get more God like God on steroids. No, it's just one and three, one and three. But then the question becomes, what distinguishes the Father from the Son and the Son from the Spirit? How are they different? They're fully God. They have all the attributes, holiness, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, all the attributes, what would be the difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And we say number four, the distinction is in how they relate to one another. Here, the Father begets and sends. The Son is always begotten 
and it comes to achieve the plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and applies salvation. And this is so important. So how is God the Father different from God the Son? Not in quality, not in his divinity, but in his relation to the Son. He begets the son is ever begotten. And we could just go on and on and on and on. And it, I just hope it sticks and start, you start to uh, understand that. And today we are going to speak on the father, the first person of the Trinity, God, the father. Now, something really cool. Prior to Jesus, nobody ever talked or referred to God as father very little. And this is true. This is documented. In our Old Testament, which is scripture, fully scripture, that God is addressed as father only 15 times. One, five. Most of those references to God being the father is in reference to him being the father of a nation. Nobody really called him personally father. In Judaism, that was not a concept that was used because God was seen as somebody so other and holy, and that's right, that this father talk was just not going to work. <laughs> In fact, we know why. We know why they wanted to kill Jesus and were against Jesus because here's in John chapter 5, verse 18, when you say, pray to God as father, you're making some, a claim. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. To call God the father in their understanding, in their right, was to identify and have the same exact nature as God the Father. Jesus saying, God is my Father, is saying, I have the same nature. I am divine, just like him. And so he is. We are sons in a different way. Daughters in a different way. We'll get into that. Comes Jesus onto the scene. And Jesus teaches us a lot about God being Father. In the Synoptic Gospels, which is just the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus will use the name Father about 60 times. In the fourth gospel, John, God being the Father comes up a hundred times. And then in the epistles, letters after the first four gospels, we see God being the Father six, used 60 times. God being the Father is a big, big deal. And Jesus is big on this. Jesus does three things for us. And I'm going to go over this and we'll get back into some more details. Not only is Jesus referred to God as the Father, but he teaches us to refer to him as Father. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, he says, do not be like them. And there was a context there. For your Father your father knows what you need before you ask him. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus teaches us to pray. This is our prayer. This isn't Jesus's prayer because Jesus could never pray, God, keep me out of temptation, things like that. Uh, deliver me from evil or forgive me for my sins, sorry. <laughs> and Jesus prays this. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven. Our father in heaven. 
heaven. Not only does Jesus teach us to relate to God as the Father, but he teaches us something else. Let's read John 17, 25 through 26. Righteous Father, though the world, this is Jesus' prayer to God, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. Not only does Jesus teach us to pray to God the Father, he makes the Father known to us. If the question is, how do I know what the Father is like? The answer is Jesus. Jesus' words and Jesus' modeling teaches us what the Father is like. We get to be his children. Not only does Jesus teach us to pray to him, not as, does, Jesus doesn't just teach us who the Father is. Jesus in, provides a way for us to be his children. In John 1.12, Jesus says, or John writes, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're getting somewhere. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. <laughs> At the core fundamental identity that we have, we are children of God. And the reason we're children of God is because of what Christ has achieved on the cross and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. And because of Christ alone, we become children. It is not true, and this is going to be a little bit of a harsh word, that every human being is a child of God. It is true that as anyone who's received Christ, who's trusted in Christ, you are adopted into the family to become his child, part of the family. And the reason is, Christ. So not only does Jesus teach us about who the Father is, Jesus makes a way for us to be in a relationship with him. We are, very importantly, children of God, not the way Jesus is the Son of God. I have a graphic for you. You see, the Father is the Father of the Son by nature. But we are not children of God by nature. No, we are children of God, sons and daughters, through adoption. And this is important. In fact, there's a passage in John chapter 20, verse 17, where Jesus says something kind of bizarre. And then it makes sense with this. He says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me after he rose from the dead, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Whoa! That's interesting. To my God and your God. Why is Jesus drawing the distinction between my father and your father? Why doesn't Jesus say our father? This actually distinction is everywhere throughout New Testament because we are children of God through adoption, not nature. Jesus is the son of God through nature. Let me tell you what this means and we're gonna get going. Fundamentally, our relationship with God is one of fellowship. It is not the relationship of a master and servant. The relationship between us and God is not the relationship fundamentally between a creator and creature. 
The relationship between us and God fundamentally is not between a judge and an acquitted sinner. It is not employer and employee. It is father and son. Father and daughter. For he is father. This is huge. This speaks to fellowship and intimacy and closeness and nearness and God's provision and God's care because he is a judge and he is a creator and he is a um, master. But fundamentally, our relationship with God is that of a father and a child. Oh, the blessings of that. Let me ask you this question. The question is not, do I believe it? Or do I know it? Are you impacted by it? The question, is, do, the question is not, do I know that, yeah, God is the father and I'm his child. The question is, has that made a difference in my life? The question is, has that and produced joy in my soul? Now, this is a hard subject for some of us because earthly fathers can ruin and get in the way of us relating to God as Father. One of, one of my chief tasks today is to show you, going back a little bit in my sermon, to what Jesus portrays the Father to be. You know what? We like to start here with our experiences with our earthly fathers. And we like to project it heavenward to what God is then like. As although that's really, really, really easy to do, that's intuitive, it's emotional, it's experiential. Like, yes, I've had my things and my experience with my father. That must be how God is. I want to ask you and plead with you, would you let scripture in Jesus define for you and portray for you what real fathers is like. And we're going to start with heaven and just stop there <laughs> and use that as a standard to evaluate our earthly fathers or our, our, ourselves as if we're fathers. You know what? Where would you go in the Bible if you wanted to show this is what God, heavenly father, is like? I can think of no better place than to go to Luke 15. I want to take this apart. I want to show you the heart of the Father. I want this to be your image as you relate to him. I want this to be the image as you think about God the Father. In Luke chapter 15, we're going to go through it. I'll read it. And we're going to ask the question, who is this God the Father? All right, Christ has done a lot. He's taught me. He's provided for me to be his child. But who is he? Well, Luke 15 gives us a remarkable story. It is the story of the prodigal son. You know what that story is? Let me read it for you. And we'll stop and think, comment on it. Jesus continued, and he tells this remarkable, remarkable story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the, he divided his property between them. Real quick. You get the scene, there's a father, he has two sons, and those two sons stand to inherit the wealth and the estate of their father when he passes away. This younger son 
has a different plan, a hurtful plan, a cruel plan. He decides to cash in his check early, which in, in a way is saying, you got to be gone, Father, but since you're not, just let's, let's speed this up. You don't matter to me. I want my money. I want my estate. The second son, typically in that culture, would get a half of the first sons. I don't know if I'm good at math, but I think that's a third of the estate. These two sons, okay? So this younger son gets a third of all the wealth of his father because he wants it now. He doesn't care. He doesn't ask. He commands. It's not a, it's not a question. It's an imperative. Now, here's what happens next. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Fill in what you think that is. Probably a good Hollywood movie would make sense here. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who set him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything for a Jew to go work for a Gentile was pretty much hitting the bottom. But then to go and work and feed unclean animals, pigs, was really, really tough. And this is where this man is. He takes everything from his father that is his, and he goes and squanders all of it. But in verse 17, the story begins to change. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, and he prepares a speech, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Let me just tell you what I see here. One thing that the father is that we don't talk enough about is he disciplines. When this young man squanders all of his wealth, has to compromise his upbringing and his religious beliefs and views to go work for a Gentile and then work with the pigs and he hits rock bottom. Let me ask you this question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think that's a good thing. This young man does not hit rock bottom. This young man has hit the rock of mercy. He has hit something that's making him go back to Jesus. Listen, church, I just want to bring this up because this is so important. You know, oftentimes I'll hear somebody say, you know, I got to go to church. Why is that? Because I don't want anything to, you know, God to do something to me. I wanna, I, I'm going to read my Bible. Why is that? Well, I don't want to like, have some problem at work or with my health. I'm going to pray. Why is that? Well, listen, if you, that's not the problem. That if you wander off from God, God's going to do something to discipline you in his loving kindness, 
to bring you back to him, who he is the most supreme, the supreme good in our lives. The real problem is that if I wander from him, the real problem is if I prefer the pleasures of Egypt to the pleasures of his promises, the real problem is if I stop and drift away and leave God and I prosper and I succeed and I am done with Christianity and somebody meets you three years down the road and says, how are things? And you say truly, things are awesome. Things are great. Things have never been better. Oh, the sweetness of God's disciplines when they bring us back to him. Can you imagine if this prodigal son started a business and continued in his wild living and was making money on money, pleasure on pleasure, and lost his soul? Mm. But God disciplines him. Well, in this story, it's not really, I think it's a fictional story, but that's what God does to us. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. When God frustrates our plans, when things don't go our way, but that in turn gets me walking towards him, reevaluating my life, Maybe I have an idol. Maybe I've gone cold to God. It is the mercies of God. I love that this man, this young, young man, squanders all, loses all, comes to his senses in the breaking of his life. But now he turns to God, oh, uh, turns to his father. How important. So let's read on. When he comes to his senses, I'll just read verse 17 one more time. He said, how many of the fathers, my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. Oh, mercy. What do you think the father does? But while he was still, a long way his father saw and was filled with compassion for him. Listen to this. The father is not absent in this moment. The father did not, does not post a sign that says, stay out, young man. The father is not, culturally speaking, canceled this young man. In fact, this father has been patiently longing to be reunited with his son. This father desires to be reconciled to his son. That's the picture Jesus wants us to have of the father. He's not absent. He's not rejecting us. He longs for us. He delights in you when you are in Christ. He moves towards you and he's waiting for him and he has compassion. I mean, you, I mean, I think Jesus here is drawing a picture more than just like giving us statements of truth. He, all those verbs, they're strong verbs. He has compassion, he's waiting. And then he proceeds to do something. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran. Now, I didn't know this, but in my study, I learned that in first culture, a first century cultures, an older man never ran. I don't know why. I mean, it would be good, right? Dieting, all this, but older men never ever ran. It would be dishonoring. And this father is so overcome with joy at his lost son coming back that he forgets cultural proprieties and he storms to him. He ran to his son through his arms and kissed him. Now the son has a speech. <laughs> the son has a speech. He says, Father, I have sinned against you, against you, against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now what does the father say? Yes, my son, that is true. I'm going to give you a payment plan. We're going to try to work some of that back. Yes, son, you have really ruined things, but I'll accept your apology. No. Repentance that this young man is demonstrating is not even paid attention to. The father ignores what this young man says. and says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Translation, we're going to go all out. Now, for us, none of those make sense, right? Ring on your finger, sandals on your feet, best robe. Uh, that's just the father saying, we're going to throw a party of parties. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want to give you a little twist to what's happening here. Do you know what the word prodigal means? It means lavish, extravagant, unstinting, going all out. Some preachers and commentators have renamed this story. It's not a story of a prodigal son. It is a story of a prodigal father. He is the father who is lavish in his mercies, lavish in his extravagant love. His kindness knows no bottom. His love and mercies is an ocean without shores. His goodness is a mountain without a top. God is lavish in his kindness. Isn't this true for us? Isn't this true for what God is like towards us? He chose you. He made you. He forgave you. He didn't just redeem you. He dressed you in robes of righteousness. He declared you righteous. He changed you. He planted you into his kingdom of light. He adopts you into his family and he gives you his spirit. Oh, God the Father is lavish with us. For all of us are that young man. Do you see why? It has to be God's grace. <laughs> Do you see why there's no other way for us into the inheritance of God and everything God has given us but by grace? I mean, think about if someone here or someone in your life, or sometimes I fall into this, of trying to work my way into God's favor. I mean, how do you earn all that lavish blessings? <laughs> you can't. 
You can never be worthy of it. You can never deserve God's lavish blessings. It has to be grace. It always will be grace. It's the mercies of God and the kindness of God that for, by which we have all that we have. A prodigal father. But we'll see something here interesting. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Let's talk about the older son. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? And the servant says, your bro brother has come. He replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never give me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, his son, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Real quick, side note on the older son. You know, in my lifetime, I've heard a lot of testimonies that we can call the younger son testimonies where someone was deep into sin or addiction or, or, or falling away from God and God turned them around, brought them in, they repented, they were restored. That's the younger son testimony. But you know what we don't really hear? Older son testimonies. The testimony of someone who says, I was self-righteous. I thought that I deserved the blessings of God. I judged everybody around me. I was haughty and proud. I thought, how could God love that guy? That girl, you know what they did? But I came back. God humbled me. God has rescued me from self-righteousness. Mercy Church, sin is as much an enemy of the gospel as is self-righteousness. And the younger man, he, excuse me, the older man here is the self-righteous son. And you know, sometimes younger sons become the older sons. If we're not careful with our hearts, we're not careful with our devotions, we don't walk in humility, being the younger brother, we can in life, in decades, become the older brother. But yet, there's something here that makes God the Father look awesome. You know what it is for me? This just did it for me. It's that the Father pursues the older brother as well. Notice this. The Father went out and pleaded with him. The Father goes and pursues the older son as well. Why? Because he's that lavish, he's that uh, kind, he is that loving. And then Jesus, excuse me, then Jesus ends the story with verse 31. My, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I want to end today we could get piano up here. 
three practical ways for us and for our hearts to capture this image of God the Father and not, not, nothing else, nothing less. First, I want to call you, Mercy Church, that as you think about God the Father, don't settle. Learn holy discontent. When I learned this word, I thought this is just bingo. You know what holy discontent is? When you're not satisfied with how much you know Jesus, you want to know him more. You're not satisfied with what you know about God the Father, you want to know more. You want to love him more. You want to worship him more. You want to surrender more to him. I have found that the people who are most humble, the people who love Jesus the most, are the people who are never satisfied with their love for Jesus. The people who evangelize the most are people who are never satisfied with how much they evangelize. The people who are kindest and most humble are people who think they're always proud and unkind. You know, what is it today that you think about God the Father? Don't settle. Press in. Try to get to know him more. Seek to know him or worship him. Number two is similar, but pursue deeper levels of fellowship through prayer. You know, we could say that, yes, my relationship between God is one of the Father and the Son, but I really operate in a master-servant model. That's me. The easiest way for me to relate to God is Jesus being master. And he is that. And I love projects, and I love tasks, and I love to do stuff for him. Nothing wrong with that. But maybe that's you. Maybe you relate to him as more like an employer-employee. Or simply you know him as a creator in your creature. But today, I want to ask you, would you pursue a fellowship and a communion with God the Father where you are his child? And it happens through prayer. It can only happen through prayer. Are you satisfied today with your relationship with God? Have you plateaued? I want to call you. Let's learn this. Let's get to such a point where God being Father assures our anxious hearts. Let's get to a point where God the Father has weight in my life. And when I think of Him as that, and I relate to Him as that, and I go deeper in communion with Him as Father, my peace spills over. Pursue the relationship with God the Father deeper. But number three, this is the key. We can only know Him as our Father, really through the Spirit through his spirit ah, so much to say let me just read Galatians 4 6 verse 7 and because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying Abba father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God another passage in Romans 8 15 through 16 says similar the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is so deep. This is so hard to understand. This is so unnatural for our fleshly blind eyes that the only way we start living with the identity as children of God is to have the Spirit of God testify to our spirits, to have the Spirit of God give rise to our voice to say, Abba, Father. Now, anyone can say, Abba, Father, if you tell them, like, repeat after me. No, 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 Paul is saying something deeper here. To say, Abba, Father, and know it, and believe it, and rest in it. And have all your anxieties go away because he is your father. And as a father, he loves you tremendously and he cares for you. To get to that level is only by the Spirit. I cannot practically tell you how this works. It's supernatural. It surpasses our understanding. But you do not arrive at the conclusion that I am his child through self-realization. Through self-effort. It must be from Him. And this is why this gives me hope for all of us here who have father wounds, who have seen fathers not make it, be absent, be gone, be cruel, be demeaning, all of the hurt. And how does someone rise above that? How does somebody rise above that? The answer is to have the Spirit of God testify to us. You are a child. You are a child. This gives me hope as a father of four boys, and I'm not perfect. And I've had my share of screw-ups. And how do I hope for my kids to relate to God as Father? It's not because I'm so perfect, definitely not. Because I know the Spirit, when He rescues my boys to Himself, will testify to them that they are children of God. This is the fundamental relationship in the universe to relate to Him as Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You so much for Your Word. God, we, Your Spirit testify to our spirits that we are indeed children, that we indeed have You as our Father who cares, loves, um, is lavish with his blessings on us. God, the wounds are real. The distortion is real. But Jesus, you have taught us what a father is. You have made him known to us and we can never be the same again. So God, would you speak to us? Would you speak to us? Would you help us cry out, Abba, Father, thank you for caring for us. Thank you for providing for us. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.